When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Remember, it's presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. If you're looking for tickets for an upcoming game or event at TCF Bank Stadium, Target Center, or XL Center, visit TicketKingOnline.com or the link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. Ticket King has all your tickets for hockey and basketball, plus all the concerts, all the theaters, and at all venues. And Ticket King can take care of you for out-of-town concerts, sporting events, and more. Call 612-341-4141 or visit TicketKingOnline.com. For those who simply can't get enough talk about the Vikings, we present Bonus Chatter. Bonus Chatter about your favorite team that's unscripted, unfiltered, and uninterrupted. This is another edition of 1500 ESPN's Purple Podcast. Go get that first Welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer. I'm joined by Judd Zolgat of 1500 ESPN's Mackie and Judd Morning Show. And again, by ESPN.com's Ben Gessling. Judd, you're fired up. You're fired up right now. I'm back and, from vacation. And, and, and I'm pissed off because of all the stuff you just told Judd me. spent a week in New York, and now he's got opinions. Yeah, exactly right. I've spent a week reading the New York Post and Daily News, and now you'd give me this crap about the National Football League, and I'm fired up. It's <laughs> so the second show I've done with you today where we're just letting you rant right off the bat. Yeah, that's a good point. Going to New York just kind of solidifies your need to just spew some hot We're takes. delaying Is that right? It. Is that what it is? When I realize Let him go. Let him out of the gate. takes on the Jets and the Giants, and then how we <laughs> pussyfoot around the Vikings, you're damn right. <laughs> kind of right about that. We do do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, Rick, you're so great. Oh, you guys today so on the Purple Podcast. Maybe today you'll be good. Let's just wait and see. Today. On this episode of the Purple Podcast, we have Andre Smith, the offensive tackle, joining the Minnesota Vikings on a one-year deal. We'll get into that, obviously, then delve into the rule changes that Judd Zolgat is so heated about. The NFL will be considering a handful of rule changes with the competition committee next week. The Vikings have one that Judd Zolgat especially hates. Then we'll get into Mike Wallace, Teddy Bridgewater, and the comments that he is now moonwalking over this entire thing, and a mailbag. First off, guys... Andre Smith joins the Vikings. This is going to be a little less hot takeish, I assume, from you, Judd. But what was your first reaction when you see the Vikings bring in a free agent offensive tackle? Really, this situation to set the table has been created as such where they've got pretty much their entire offensive line on one-year deals heading into this year. Uh, my first reaction is good for them. You had a terrible offensive line for the most part. Or you had a lot of question marks in 2015. Uh, ben, my second thought is Phil Lodeholt's stint with the Vikings will probably last until sometime through Mankato. And then he'll be gone. If Andre Smith comes in here 
and he's getting some guaranteed cash, and Phil is not. If Smith comes in here and performs the way he should, I think the uh, the veteran Viking right tackle has probably seen his last days in purple. Yeah, I think there's a very good chance of that, and the contract structures would certainly make you think that that's the way it's going to go. Andre Smith has guaranteed money. Phil Lodeholt does not. Andre Smith is scheduled to make more money than Phil Lodeholt. They can talk all they want about competition, but a lot of times these contracts – tend to be the thing that tips the balance. If you have guys that are making more money, they're not going to sit on the bench. Matt Khalil is not going to sit on the bench at $11.1 million, and he is the one guy that doesn't really have a direct competitor on the offensive line for next season. So I feel like, yeah, I, I would agree with you, Judd, that if things work out, Andre Smith is your guy. Andre Smith is the guy that allows you to let T.J. Clemmings develop at his own pace for another year. You kick that decision down the road by a year, and unless Phil Lodeholt looks like he's back to being the guy that he was, I would expect that it's going to be Andre Smith, and Phil Lodeholt probably is looking for work, I would assume. Andre Smith, 29 years old, the former sixth overall pick in 2009 out of Alabama. Uh, he's a guy that started seven years at right tackle. I think it's the last five years at right tackle for the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, guys, he was a guy that the the Bengals clearly didn't have too much interest in bringing back, but he's somebody that I think could help the Vikings at least be a healthy body. He's got a track record, though, of maybe not being in the best of shape all the time. He's best known for his 40-yard dash in 2009 when he did it shirtless and then unabru- or, uh, ex- excuse me, abruptly and unexpectedly left the uh, NFL Combine, which made that. a lot of teams questioning, is this guy you know, a, a true professional? Can we trust him and all these things? Um, he's at least shown that he can be a steady right tackle, though being a right tackle as a sixth overall pick makes you wonder if he's ever lived up to his potential. But to your guys' point, I have to agree. I think he comes in as the front runner. Ben, as you pointed out, the contract terms certainly indicate that, uh, especially for a guy like Phil Lodehold who's coming off two season-ending injuries. But right now they've got Matt Khalil, uh, Phil Lodeholt, Mike Harris, Joe Berger, uh, Andre Smith, those are at least the five off the top that are all entering contract years, correct? Yeah, and John Sullivan has no more guaranteed money. So for all intents and purposes, he is too. Yeah, so basically now they have created a great – you said competition can really be a buzzword and not mean too much, but really they've created an atmosphere, at least with the new offensive line coach and Tony Sperano, to cultivate this competition where really nobody should feel safe. If you're a fan of this team, you should feel comfortable at least with what they've done with the offensive line. If you're a player, you feel very uncomfortable knowing that, hey, nobody really is safe here, right, Ben? Yeah, I mean, you should feel comfortable in how uncomfortable they have made their offensive line. (laughs) I will give them credit for saying, we had a problem here. Let's not pretend that, oh, we've got all these guys with track records that they're going to get back to normal and we're going to change the coach. Everything will be fine. They went out and said, this was not acceptable and we are going to make some people very, very uncomfortable. We're going to take some people that have had jobs here for a very long time. It was two years ago where Norv Turner came in and we were talking in training camp. He he was looking at the offensive line. He'd inherited it and said, there's a lot of continuity here. This is going to be one of the strengths of our offense. Well, that goes away. You have injuries. You have guys that didn't play well even before they were injured. And all of a sudden now you have a lot of people that have had jobs on this line for a very long time that aren't guaranteed to have them anymore. So the fact that you have put some money, at least, where your mouth is, you don't want to put too much money there because you don't have to, but you have put players in a position where you're going to have veteran guys that have had starting jobs that aren't necessarily going to have them, and I like the fact that they are at least willing to go to that point and say, let's not pretend this is not an issue. It was. We need to solve it, 
and this is how we're going to try to yeah, do it. Yeah, and Judd, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. What they did by saying we need to solve it this way through free agency is say basically we need to go against what our approach is, which is build through the draft, cultivate guys that way, and kind right. of extend them. Well, it didn't really work in the last few drafts. You had four picks over the last two. Only two of those guys are still on the team, and you saw T.J. Clemmings be a complete uh, disappointment, at least, in that first year. So, Judd, what do you think? Do you credit the Vikings for at least shifting their, their philosophy a little bit, or what's your take on the offensive line? I think Mike Zimmer probably went to Rick Spielman and said, Rick, look, you like to cherry pick offensive linemen in late rounds. It's not working. So this is a case where you might have to go against your philosophical uh, beliefs, which is I like to take offensive linemen on on the Saturday now of the draft. It hasn't worked. But the most interesting dynamic to me of this line, and believe me, I like what the team has done for the most part, the most interesting dynamic is Matt Khalil. How is Matt Khalil? Because he's the one guy who's going to get to Mankato, and you're going to look at the depth chart, and there's nothing there. So, okay, it's great. Center now, you've got some depth there because we know that Berger can come back and play. Left guard, you went out and signed a free agent that looks like a good signing. That allows you to move Fusco, your struggling left guard, back to right guard where he knows he can play. Let's say Smith works out at right tackle, and if Smith doesn't, there's a lot of competition behind him. The dynamic that becomes really intriguing is Matt Khalil because Matt Khalil is still the guy who's going to get to Mankato this summer and look behind him and say, there's nothing here. So it's either Matt Khalil performs way above expectations or, or what expectations have become for him and turns into the player who can get that big long-term contract and or you potentially have at times a swing gate again at left tackle, which creates a whole bunch of havoc because if Bridgewater's going to get protection, it's really got to start with your left tackle. Yeah, and they're clearly all in or bust with Matt Cleal on the fifth-year right. option. As you pointed out, Ben, $11 million. Even if he had competition, no one's going to beat him out at that price tag. The player Matt Khalil is competing with is probably not on this roster right now, and he needs to probably look at it that way to say, I can either I can go one of two ways now. I can play to the level that I did as a rookie, and I can make an awful lot of money, or I can look for a job somewhere else while they start over at that position. Whether or not they have competition for him in the sense of we need a guy that's going to light a fire under Matt Khalil, that shouldn't be necessary. His His financial situation should do that on its own. What you would like to see is if, if he gets hurt or if he has a situation where he's not very good, that you have another option there. Maybe Alex Boone can slide out there. I don't know that that's necessarily the way you want to go, but from the from the motivational perspective of it, Matt Khalil should have plenty of reason to come in in good shape and have a good year. And the two guys I think I at least look at to say if there is an external person that can light a fire under Matt Khalil, it might be Tony Sperano at offensive line and a coach, and it might be it might be Alex Boone at left guard, who's known to have that kind of a personality. You got a couple Matt guys really, that have a really little doesn't. bit more of a. Uh, they've run a little hotter, I think, than than some of the guys that you've had around here before. In your guys' mind, is are we talking about a Khalil needing a fire lit under him, or are we simply talking about a guy who had a really good rookie season and has one or two bad knees, and it's not so much that, that he doesn't have, have the motivation to play, He's just too banged up to ever achieve what we thought he would be, which was, I think, a five-year Pro Bowl player at least. Well, to, yeah, to my understanding – the the coaching staff and Jeff Davidson thought that he played too passive at times. And that was something that's kind of always been the knock on him. Is he a guy that really commit has that commitment to football, that passion for it? Is he a guy that has that mean streak you want to see in an offensive lineman? And they haven't necessarily fully seen that, but it's hard to juggle what goes wrong when he's got those issues with his knees, all the other health problems, shoulder, back. I mean, he's dealt with so many things and played through it all that you have to wonder, okay, did he look fully healthy last season? Or was that a guy still trying to come over a hump there of his health problems? He's always struggled. 
struck me as a guy, and I think he's talked about this, he's struck me as a guy that when he's had injury issues, when he's had things that made him question his technique, he kind of gets in his own head a little bit. He starts to wonder, okay, can I trust my knee? Can I trust that the way I do things normally is going to work? And I think when that happens, I mean, you've heard Mike Zimmer talk about how he needs to have some confidence, how Khalil needs to have some confidence. And I think those things have compounded on each other in the past. You know, I, I think what the Vikings probably want to see is don't worry about that. Just go play and have a little bit more of that nasty mentality. I and mean, would you have a guy in Alex Boone talking on his press conference about we play to the whistle? Well, maybe we play until the echo of the whistle in our ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that mentality, I mean, you have to keep it within reason because of the rule changes that are coming that we'll let Judd rant about here in a minute. But. <laughs> I don't think that mentality for your line is a bad thing to have, and I don't think it would be a terrible thing for that to rub off on Matt Khalil to the point where he can say, you know what, I can do this job. I know I can. I'm going to stop thinking about it. I'm going to get out of my own head, and I'm going to go play. Could be a lot of changes along the offensive line. Uh, Speaking of changes, Judd's blood pressure is rising as we bring up the NFL rule change considerations that the competition committee will convene on next uh, week. Uh, The Vikings have one interesting change before we get to the more meaningful ones. Uh, Of the, let's count here, uh, 19. Of the 19 rule changes that are being proposed, uh, one with the Vikings. They're idiots. Can I say it? The the lone one that is being proposed by the Vikings is regarding the coaching challenges. They want to eliminate the requirement that a team be successful on each of its first two instant replay challenges to be awarded a third. They want it to just be one of two. And now Mike Zimmer, Ben, as you noted before the podcast, what's his batting average when it comes to challenges? I would bet it is somewhere in the neighborhood of what Nishioka's batting average oh. was when he was here. I guess I, not good. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like it's been terribly good. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have to go back and look at the whole thing, but I, I felt like the first year it took him several months to win one. And he's been a little bit more aggressive with them in general. He probably has, yeah. and I think he's he had a couple last year that were successful. I, I have to go back and look. I don't feel like it's been real good. Judd, why do you hate it? Because there's no reason to make the game longer, which is what they're trying to basically do. Because if you win a challenge, then then you get a third. If you're going to do this, just go to what Belichick wants. Make anything reviewable up to the amount of t- So you get your two challenges, and you can ask them to review any one play. But to institute a third, because you're already talking about every score is reviewed, right? Every mm-hmm. turnover reviewed. And in the final two minutes of each game, I believe, the replay officials take over on throwing challenges and calling for them. So if that's the case... I don't want you, if you get one right, to get a third. I don't want anything that's going to prolong the game, in my opinion, is not a great idea. And if you are going to do this, as I said, to me it's far more important than to let's go to a system that allows coaches to challenge any one play that they think was mishandled instead of, instead of having a certain, certain things that can be challenged. It's just a better answer, and essentially what they're looking to do is make the game longer by saying, okay, I got one right, now I get a third. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, to me, if you're going to do this, having this sort of protective bubble around pass interference doesn't work anymore. I mean, you're, you're giving coaches the enough challenges that where you say you, you can have three of these a game independent of plays that are turnovers and scoring plays. 
there probably aren't going to be enough plays for people to challenge during the course of a game, especially when you won't let them challenge pass interference. Some of the most obvious things that should be challenged can't be challenged. Right. They're I mean, right. The, the most costly things. I mean, is there a penalty in a game that can be more costly than a pass interference? I mean, ask Terrence Newman about that. When Jeff Janis jumps into him in that game last November at TCF Bank Stadium, that was a 52-yard play for the Packers. That was the best offensive play they had all day. And here's what drives me crazy, Kramer. This drives me absolutely up the wall. Every spring this happens. The competition committee meets in a boardroom with their with their coffees and coffees and cigarettes, and they sit around looking at, hey, do you know what we should do? <laughs> we should we should look at this rule, and then and this is how you come up with 19 things. This is yeah. why officiating sucks. It's not the officials' issues. It is these guys in suits who have completely paralyzed the on the field people by coming up with this minutia that they look at. And if we sit here right now and watch a, watch an NFL game and just come up with ideas, let's change this and that. It sounds great right now. But at full speed in January or December, it's a really bad idea. Well, a lot of these guys on the competition competition committee are executives or coaches with teams, so they are people that have at least some kind of say uh, in terms of the but it's team, film. team it's level. Still, it's still they're looking at film, yes, they're looking at things true. on film as that's opposed true. to at full speed, and they don't consider that. Now, hey, what does Judd think of the two personal fouls penalty? I was just going to say now the one that will really get Judd going because he hasn't yet, folks, is uh, the auto ejection rule. Uh, the one that was kind of rumored, I think, around the Super Bowl. Uh, actually, no, it was rumored after the Odell Beckham suspension, after he had three personal fouls and did not get removed from a game and was in turn suspended for the Viking game here at TCF Bank Stadium. Yep. Uh, that is expected to pass, according to Ian Rappaport of NFL Network. Uh, the auto ejection rule that will eject a player for two personal fouls. Now, which personal fouls have yet to be decided? But... One problem I see with this, guys, already is that with this, Rappaport reports that the NFL is not considering changing what can be replay or uh, reviewed, excuse me, under instant replay, meaning that now these personal fouls, which all cannot be reviewed, will still not be reviewed, even though they can lead to an ejection. Why do they make things so tough, though? I, I completely don't get this. We haven't even gotten to the catch rule yet. But, but I mean, this is, this is, <laughs> but this is so much more difficult than it, it needs to be. First yeah. of all, Beckham was a moron that day. The officials should have ejected him. It was an easy call. This wasn't That's common sense. Right. Yes. This wasn't a yes. tough, oh, man, he sort of pushed yep. the envelope. He went crazy on the field. The fact he wasn't ejected from that game was moronic on the officials' part. I blame them there. That's a very easy fix. Someone's a moron from now on, eject him, right? Now, if they go to a – it depends. If they go to – if I push you and you push me, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's a personal foul, and then I face mask somebody in the fourth quarter of a game – and they decide that the pushing does not constitute the ejection, I'm fine with that. But if you actually go to something where you are ejecting people based on I throw a flag because of a shoving match, and then I do something egregious, and that gets me thrown out, that is completely stupid. Yeah, the issue you're setting the table with is saying that the first foul, normally the second foul, it's all human. So the second foul, personal foul, will probably be officiated a little bit with more scrutiny. They won't just throw it out there. But the first one is what you're talking about, and that anything then could maybe ignite the first foul. I would be okay with this if they went, if I thought they were going down the college route of they're trying to eject people for targeting. But this sounds to me like they actually took the Beckham game and have come up with this rule based on the fact the officials didn't eject the guy. And he was running around that whole game basically like a hockey player cheap-shotting guys. That's such an easy fix to me. Hey, next time a guy does that two or three times, throw him out of the game. But how many times does the NFL make a rule where they trust the officials' judgment? There's none of this stuff where they say, you know what? 
we have good officials, and we can debate that, but if, <laughs> let's assume for a second that we have good officials. And I, I think for the most part, they do a good job. This but, is not sponsored by the NFL uh, Union for Referees. Go ahead. <laughs> we, it, I think there are a lot of these rules where they say we have to make this, we have to create this bright line of what yeah. is a catch, what is a personal foul. There is no room in there for an official officiating a game, refereeing a game, to say, you know what, I think that's what this was. You never give officials the chance to make a call on their own or at least make a judgment call. And I, I get the fact that Roger Goodell does not want one crew to call something a certain way and one crew to call it a drastically different way. He talked about that when he was in town yeah. before the Packer game last fall. I get that. But when you make this stuff so complicated that – there's so much stuff to think about, like you're talking about, Judd. You take away the ability of an official to just do his job and not overthink. It's the same thing we're talking about with Matt Khalil and, and players. You don't want them overthinking. You want them just reacting and feeling the course of the game. Hey, this is Manny Hill from The Ride with Royce. You're listening to The Purple Podcast. Obviously, that means you like the Vikings. Well, if you're also into the Wolves, you should check out the Raised by Wolves podcast, where we talk all things Minnesota Timberwolves. Subscribe to us on iTunes and at the Podcast Center at 1500ESPN.com. When you put all this stuff in there, they have to think through every section of this, this overly complicated rule book. It makes it awfully hard to do that, doesn't it? And, boys, the Beckham thing is annoying based on this. If Odell Beckham played for Tampa Bay, and that had been the Titans and Bucks game, we wouldn't be talking about this. We're talking about this because it was played in New York, and he plays for the Giants. It's an undefeated team. And the league team. office is right across the bridge there, and it was a big deal. That's why we're talking yeah. about this. The The NFL, for as successful as they are, and you got to give them their due, overcorrects and overreacts so badly. And the Beckham thing is based solely on the fact they didn't eject him from a Giants game. I'm telling you, if that's the Titans and Bucks, it would have been sort of a big deal on Monday and by now, it'd be forgotten about. I think that was a late game on national TV because the, the Panthers were undefeated. Because I, re I remember watching You're the right. end of that game in the Vikings locker room. They had just beat, what, probably the Bears, I think? Yeah, yep. It would have been And they the were Bears. watching the end of that game. Yep. Well, no, it must have been an early game then. Because in any case, I think it was Buck and Aikman calling it. So it was a high-profile game for Fox. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly which Vikings game it would have been, but the end was playing uh, in the Viking locker room toward the end because that would have been around the time that they were waiting to see if they could get uh, clinched a playoff spot. Now, they're not going to review what a catch is. They're not going to change that because apparently that is perfect. Because we all love that rule. It's perfect, set in stone, and that's good. However, uh, according to also Ian Rappaport, um, NFL media reporting, NFL rules, that they are going to continue the education of what is a catch. So basically, I think they're probably going to be dropping pamphlets from the sky over NFL cities. Um, I don't know if they're going to be kind of putting like advertisements on your milk cartons on what is a catch. I don't know what they're going to be doing, but the education of it, and it must be pretty fine print because this rule is only getting longer. How can you educate people on something you can't even define the it, league can't define Judd, it. you just have to make a football move and then get out of the stadium with the foot i don't know but i mean I i'm know. serious how can they educate <laughs> i defy them to explain to me i i defy them let's pick five rooms and have five people from from the league office sit in separate rooms and go room to room to room and say what's a catch you're gonna get five answers how can they educate me on something uh, they can't define i feel like when goodell was in town i'm almost i think tom pelicero asked him what is a catch, Roger? And he could not answer it 
in even he laughed ten words it. or less. Yeah, yeah I think he, he kind of you know did an end around on the question. Yeah. but uh, he certainly so didn't want to go there. Why? Why have they made this so difficult? I mean, there are things in know. sports that I I agree are difficult to define and officiate and make a decision on. But why is a catch? Nine out of ten times, I can tell you exactly what the catch was. And the tenth time, I might be on the borderline a little bit, but I can make up my damn mind. And they have made they have so paralyzed everybody that we're to the point now where no one can tell you what a football move is, what a athletic move is, and what a catch is. Because it's like we're talking about. The solution to all of this stuff in their minds is let's add more verbiage, let's make it more complicated, let's sit around and talk about it, and then, oh, this sounds great in a boardroom, and then when we get to the, the you know, officials being on the field to deal with this, you can't do it because they've made it so complicated you take all common sense out of it. It just it doesn't make it. That rule, I, I don't think anybody likes it. And that one, to me, is a perfect example of the NFL sort of overcomplicating things for the sake of overcomplicating things. I would be reading off the catch rule if I could find it in the 242-page NFL <laughs> rule book, but go ahead. This is one area, Andrew and Ben, where you really wish that the the NFLPA had some strength. Because you know what? In baseball, if you went to baseball players and said, we're not going to tell you what a catch is at first base. We're going to make it so if you drop the ball after, I mean, it's it's set, it's pretty much set. If you have control of the ball, the guy's out. Baseball would say no. Players would say no. You're not going to do that. We're going to sit down with you and we are going to help you define define the catch. The problem that the NFL ends up have, having is they're so powerful and the NFLPA is so weak that the players can't do anything. So the people, really, the players should go to the league and say, "Here's what a catch is." Listen to us right now. Write this down, and we're going to operate off this. Maybe talk to some people who, I don't know, have to catch a ball yes, during a game. But the NFLPA is so damn weak right. that the NFL and Goodell, who is a businessman, basically, and a PR guy, yep. they're the ones trying to make up rules, and they take them to the players and say, here's the rule. If the players had any strength at all, they'd say, oh, no, 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 that's not the rule. We're going to talk about the rule. And here's what the rule is. But they the, don't have that strength. The current, the current NFL catch rule that is going to be a continuing education of all NFL fans, players, and media, apparently. A uh, player who makes a catch may advance the ball. That's a good start. But he has to secure control of the ball in his hands or arms prior to the ball touching the ground and touches the ground inbounds with both feet with any part of his body other than his hands and maintains control of the ball after A and B have been fulfilled, comma, until he has clearly become a runner. Now, there's a whole other section on until he has clearly become a runner. I stopped paying attention like 10 seconds exactly. ago. Exactly. So this is your guys' point to illustrate it just overtly and that there are now five different sections underneath those three-point rules that I just read on the catch. That is not going to change in 2016. It is only going to be educated further on what is a catch, and Des Bryant still did not catch it, according to the NFL. So, guys, that's where we're at with NFL Des rule. Des caught that ball. That's right. <laughs> that's where that we're at with catch. NFL rule changes. Um, you guys like dancing? Because Mike Wallace just moonwalked over his entire comments on Teddy Bridgewater, telling USA Today uh, in a text message, apparently, that he did not mean to uh, say Teddy Bridgewater was a bad guy or a bad quarterback, excuse me, because that's all he tried to say before. They are friends, and they are, quote, A1. Or 1A. I'm not sure which one that means. I think but he said A1. And A1. what is A1, by the and way? Is it just like keeping that, it 100? Yeah, they're, just, they're, okay. they're still close pals, friends. And here's the thing. It, it, those comments... To set the stage, Mike Wallace goes out, introductory press conference with Baltimore, and says, uh, I knew I wasn't going back to Minnesota. I was like, I need a good quarterback. I need a quarterback who I know is proven. You clearly take that as him saying that Teddy Bridgewater was, one, A, not a good quarterback, and two, not a proven quarterback. Not A1. 
Now, he's certainly not proven, and some could argue whether or not he's good at this point. I think the issues with Mike Wallace in Minnesota were both two-sided. He dropped four passes throughout the year. Teddy Bridgewater missed him on a handful of deep shots. This offense, as a whole, pivoted away from the vertical approach as the year went on. Mike Wallace kept his mouth shut until he left Minnesota and now is saying that he didn't mean to backtrack. It been through all that. Mm-hmm. What do you assess with Mike Wallace and Teddy Bridgewater? Well, I was texting with somebody last night about this that said, number one, Mike shouldn't have said it because you never heard Teddy throw anybody under the bus for dropping passes. But the second thing, and I wrote about this yesterday, I think it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. This week is getting long with free agency and stuff. But anyway, wrote about it on ESPN.com. This had been an issue with Mike Wallace for a while. It, it was not an issue specifically with Teddy Bridgewater. He did not have a lot of egregious complaints with Teddy Bridgewater that I know of during the season. My understanding of it was he was certainly upset that the offense didn't turn into what he expected it was going to be, and the Vikings certainly thought Mike Wallace was going to come in and give them a deep threat in their offense. Norv Turner was as excited about Mike Wallace as anybody in March, April, May, and I remember Mike Wallace saying that when he got here, saying, yeah, I didn't I didn't necessarily want to be here a couple of years ago because of the weather or the quarterback or whatever it happened to be, but now it feels like a good fit, and it feels like I'm going to click well with Teddy. Well, there are people in the Vikings organization that feel like Mike Wallace should have had the kind of year that they thought he was going to have. Some of that was that Teddy missed him on a couple long passes. A couple of times he dropped the ball. He had, I think, four drops, and he had a touchdown that he probably could have caught against San Francisco in week one. But a lot of it, too, is that the offensive line was so bad that there were times where they tried to go deep and the protection broke down. Teddy had to check down or, or get out of the pocket. The other times, you you maybe had situations where there wasn't enough going on on the other sides of the field to take coverages away from focusing on Wallace. So there were a lot of factors here that went on. And over the course of the season, the Vikings said, we have to change this offense to something that will work given – the dire straits of our offensive line. That meant going to shorter passes. That meant throwing more horizontal stuff. That's not Mike Wallace's game. And I think he was saying, I want to get back to that. And Joe Flacco has the kind of arm that allows him to do that. I don't think his issues in Minnesota and what contributed to him having an underwhelming season was solely at the feet of Teddy Bridgewater. And I don't think that's what he meant. I'd have to agree with you there, Ben. And now you covered all the points on the Vikings uh, thoroughly. So I'll pivot and talk about the fact that Mike Wallace's personality seems to be that he, once he leaves an area, he can just kind of talk about it uh, with, with kind of a reckless abandon. Um, and probably had no idea that these comments that he made at the introductory press conference at the podium, not over the phone to a reporter or on a radio show, at a podium with all the cameras rolling, were going to carry this far. Uh, but they obviously did. He can't say one thing and take it back. He clearly meant that Teddy Bridgewater felt that that was on him. Uh, no matter what he tries to say afterward, he clearly felt like it was more one-sided than it actually was. And I think the reality, too, is that when you're a player at the point of your career where Mike Wallace is, the narrative as you go somewhere new is always going to be, well, why should this time be any different? We heard it from Mike Wallace during training camp last year talking about how he needed to be a better leader than he was in Miami. And by all accounts, he did a lot of that in Minnesota. He was the guy that was out there catching passes from the jugs machine long after practice, kind of making that a thing for receivers. But when you go into a new city every year, you are going to get the questions about, okay, now what are you going to be able to do to get back to who you were And that inherently is going to lead to you trying to say, here's what happened last year, 
and this is why it's going to be different this it's time. It's like every year with a coach, or every time a uh, team fires a coach, you hear, oh, that coach didn't treat us right, right. and the new one's going to. That quote, too, to me, uh, read far worse than it sounded. Yeah. It didn't sound nearly as egregious towards Bridgewater when you heard it, when you read it, it sounded really bad. Uh, I think what he should have said was this. The offense wasn't what I expected it to be. Because yeah. I, I think that's very fair. And he said that while he was here. And I told yeah. Ben this. I said, to me, Mike Wallace was the child stuck in the middle of a divorce. And it was this. In training camp, in preseason games, if, if you're called a Dallas game, he caught a pass along the sidelines. That was exactly what Mike Wallace had been sold on. Yep. And then we got to opening night, and as Ben said, on opening night San Francisco, he doesn't catch that deep ball. That was a tough catch, but it, but it was catchable. And then after that game, he got caught up basically in, oh, my God, Bridgewater can do this well, and Peterson does that well. What should we do? And what happened starting week two? Yeah. It's skewed towards Peterson. And at that point, Wallace was basically screwed. I think he would have been very – I think it would have been very correct for him to basically just say, the Minnesota offense, I thought I – thought, one thing about it with Norv, it didn't work out that way. It didn't work. That, to me, would have been completely fair and accurate. Here's the other dynamic that played into it, too, was that Stephon Diggs became as big a part of this offense as he did. That happened for a couple reasons. Number one, he's a good receiver for what they're trying to do. He's able to get open over the middle. He's able to separate in, in short areas from defensive backs, and he's able to run after the catch. But it also reflected a little bit of a shift, and I wrote a little bit about this, too, Scott Turner started to gain a lot more influence in that offense throughout the course of the season. They started putting more on him as far as game planning. They're sort of giving him a chance to dip his toes in that water a little bit. And the guy that discovered Stephon Diggs, the guy that was pushing George Stewart to take a closer look at Stephon Diggs was Scott Turner. He tried to recruit Diggs when he was the receivers coach at Pitt. And George Stewart, I remember telling me and Chip Scoggins during training camp last year, Scott Turner was in his ear every day saying, you got to take a look at this Diggs guy. He can play. So I think the fact that, that Scott Turner was getting more influence in that room and he that gave Stephon Diggs a champion, Diggs also had a chance to, to take the, the job and run with it once Charles Johnson got hurt. Mm-hmm. He did it, give him credit for it, but he certainly had a guy that was, was in his corner there. Where is, uh, in your opinion, Scott Turner's power at now with the addition of Shermer and Sperano to the coaching staff? You know, I think that'll be interesting. I, I don't think that it's you know it's it'll be interesting to see how that plays out I'm I'm not sure how I I have a feeling that the additions that Mike Zimmer made those are people that Mike Zimmer I think brought in more so than North Turner I I know Tony Sperano is that they had talked about bringing in an offensive line coach that North Turner had worked with that was Pat Flaherty they canceled the interview with Pat Flaherty once they hired Tony Sperano who is a Mike Zimmer guy Pat Shermer is another guy that has exposure in different offenses, West Coast kind of stuff. I would assume that that is going to mean there is inherently a larger pot of ideas than we've seen in the past. Scott Turner has worked in a few different systems. North Turner has not had as much of that, but I I think when you have this many voices in there, just by nature, you're going to have more guys with a say and more guys that have to adjust to what other people want to do, and it's going to be on them to make all of that work. All right, guys. We got a couple uh, time for or some time. Excuse me for a couple questions. For two more uh, from a mailbag, as we have. Good. Viking. There'll be five people that hear that that get this. But One more that's question. Fine. Might, One more o- question. might only be the three sitting here at the table, but that's all right. If we have any other beat writers that listen to this, <laughs> maybe they do. <laughs> that'll be the only people to get it. 
Mailbag. Yinka would like to know, is Rick Spielman putting up a smoke screen about drafting a wide receiver because he wants a defensive guy to fall like Sharif Floyd in 2013? Well, I think that's a little specific of a scenario. I don't think they're putting up a smoke smoke screen about a receiver given how this plan has gone along. Uh, this is that time of year, but with free agency, they've, draft, they've addressed every single position. I think that they've kind of needed to between safety, linebacker, offensive line. Uh, they, they need, obviously, a lot of help between their tight end position, uh, between their wide receiver. But I think, Ben, that a first-round first wide receiver is not necessarily as much of a smoke screen, I think, as people might assume. I guess I'm not quite sure what people are interpreting as a smoke screen just because they were down at Baylor looking at Corey Coleman I mean or, or the stuff that I mean Rick Spielman I thought went on about Laquan Treadwell at the combine when he didn't need to yeah um, was brought up just basically asked if he was going to run as 40 and uh, Rick just basically went on this speech about how he tells these kids you need to run we need to see you why would you not want to he seemed to be a little perturbed anyway that Laquan wasn't running and now apparently according to Doogie our own uh, Darren Wolfson uh, Laquan will be part of the top 30 visit here as well uh, in April yeah, I think – I mean, he said that – He Rick has said that before. He said that about quarterbacks not throwing at the combine, okay. too. I think so that was the year that they were probably in the market for a quarterback when they were looking at Teddy Bridgewater and others. But that was one of the things that he said is, why wouldn't you just throw here and compete with the other yeah. guys? Rick is always very much in the camp of come out here, compete with the people in your draft class, and show what you can do. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they're certainly going to look at receivers. I don't think that's any surprise. I think they certainly know that they need to do that. But – I don't think at this point they are locked into any one position. No, and I wouldn't be surprised either, as he, as Yinka references in the question, that they go defensive front at some point in that first round. Uh, whether they trade back or whether they stick at 23 and get somebody, this is a team that, as we can see, and an NFL landscape that really, if you're going to get pass rushing help, uh, you better get it while it's cheap and young. Because right now, guys like um, Olivier Vernon, uh, guys like uh, Von Miller, they're going to be cashing in and have already cashed in. Uh, whereas some of these young guys, you know, it's like quarterback now. You need to get that help while it's young. And I don't think the Vikings have ruled out uh, helping that defensive line either. Everything this time of year is a smokescreen. <laughs> I mean, there's there's almost no move that they make. There's There might be one or two moves that they make where you say that's real. But for the most part, this is where this is where you could argue that teams spend a lot of time wasting their time mm-hmm. because they're so intent on trying to confuse the media and other teams that it gets to a point sometimes where you just say, you know what, you're doing yeah. too much here. But I would say to that question, everything in March into April is a smokescreen. I don't believe anything <laughs> I see or hear, really. Do the Vikings have a viable uh, – this is from Brooks Rogers. Do the Vikings have a viable backup option at left tackle in, in case Khalil plays like crap? Well – we just kind of went over that. They kind of don't. Uh, I think Andre Smith's a guy who's played left tackle before. Um, T.J. Clemmings, I believe, played left tackle in college, didn't he? But he's not. He's not a guy. I don't think he did. I think he was a right tackle, and I don't know that you want to go there anyway. He's not a guy you trust moving over. Can anyway. Boone move? In all seriousness, could Boone move if you had to? If you had to move, I, from I guard think he's to played some tackle before. I mean, he's got the size to play that position. Sure. I mean, he's a big guy for a guard. He's almost built more like a tackle. I mean that that might end up being what they tried if if they ended up in a situation where they had to make a move there if if Khalil is hurt or if he's just not good enough that you need to make a switch that I would think would be the first course of action unless Carter Bykowski you feel like is healthy enough to do it I but I don't know that there's a 
as good of a backup option at that position as there are in some of the other spots. And like right tackle and center last year, if they have to hit the dumb button on that position, they're kind of screwed uh, right now anyway with how this roster's set up. They need Matt Khalil. They're banking on him uh, in 2016. If you're paying a guy $11.1 million yeah. and he's healthy and you're looking to replace him, you are generally going to be in some trouble. That might be a reflection on your general manager at that point, by the way. Your quarterback and and your left tackle are big deals right now. Those are two really – one's a high draft pick, and the quarterback is your second first-round quarterback, and that is – Rick Spielman's done a nice job with draft picks, but if you, sw- if you swung and missed on your left tackle, Ponder, and Bridgewater, you got a problem. Hard to argue with that. Cheezel would like to know, will we be seeing more Jarek McKinnon lining up at wide receiver this season? Seemed to be effective last year. Obviously, Jarek McKinnon helped out quite a bit toward the end of 2016. I think he averaged 8.1 yards per touch over the last four games. Everybody expects him to be a bigger part. Ben certainly seemed to work well at wide receiver. Yeah, it did. I, I don't know that you're going to make him exclusively that. No, I mean, no, you, I you're not going to probably make him exclusively anything, but... Yeah, I mean, I liked when they they had him in the slot. I think that worked pretty well, and I think that they were able to move some things off of that, do some jet sweeps, that kind of stuff. You know, things you would do with Cordero Patterson that seemed to work pretty well for Jarek McKinnon. I I expect he'll have a bigger role. I think they probably should have unearthed some of that stuff a little sooner than they did, and I expect it'll continue. What's your guys' sense on this? How important do you think it's going to be for them in 2016 to keep Peterson happy? Because clearly in 2015 it became a big deal. The door's open. If you don't like this or that, come in and tell us. Do you think that remains as big a deal in 2016, or do we go to, Adrian, here's more of your role, here's what we expect from you, and we don't want you to come upstairs and bitch and moan every time you don't like it? I think it certainly would be productive to move in that direction and I think you're at a spot now where I mean there's I don't I can't imagine that Adrian Peterson is playing on his 2017 contract the way it currently looks when you've got a six million dollar bonus basically coming in the first three days of the league year I believe the cap figure is like 17 or 18 million dollars that is set up that they have to make a decision on him after this year and I'm sure he'll know that last year was an odd situation because you spent the entire summer trying to get him to come back that inherently sends the message that we want you badly enough that we want to make sure that you're comfortable here. So I I think the the relationship between Adrian Peterson and Mike Zimmer is very strong. I think Mike Zimmer likes Adrian Peterson an awful lot. So and they're both guys that have appreciated each other's directness. So I think there will probably be conversations between those two guys, but it probably would help if Mike Zimmer is willing to say and I think he would be willing to say this that Adrian, you have to fit in the team concept a little bit more. And I think based on what he was saying at the end of the season and what I've heard he's said to a few other people in the organization, Adrian knows that. I, I think he knows what they need to see from him, and the question will be, can he do it? Yeah, this offense will shift to Teddy Bridgewater sooner rather than later. Uh, that's just kind of the case, and I think that's what they have to do. Um, so I, I presume it's going to be, like you said, Judd, it's going to be more of, and Ben, as you said, fit this fit Adrian fit this peg you know that's, that's kind of what you have to do here you have to fit a certain role that we need you to we cannot uh, curtail this entire offense around you especially considering what it did to Teddy Bridgewater last season when they did that um, and as Adrian said at the end of the season I want to be a better fit for this offense be the right fit and he even pointed to Jarek McKinnon as a guy that was a great example of that so uh, Adrian's well aware of that I'm sure those conversations Ben you referenced have already been had to some point between him and Mike Zimmer him and Norv Turner um, I think Adrian will probably have to make some concessions this year and change at least some facet of his game to get on the field more. I will be very curious to see what they do with him 
in OTAs in minicamp. He's not been a guy that shows up at OTAs an awful lot, but if you're Kevin Stefanski, you're coaching running backs for the first time, you need to get Adrian there for at least part of that program. Absolutely. And you need to work with him on being able to get comfortable out of the shotgun. That's really the time that you can work on that stuff and really get down to the nitty-gritty of it. I think him showing up and being able to work on some of that stuff is going to be something certainly to, to keep an eye on as we're out in OTAs here in a couple months. He also no longer gets a free pass on preseason games, in my opinion. You want him to see him play? I think he has to play now. Well, Mike Zimmer kind of said I that think last he has year, to. didn't he? I think if you're going if you're going to transition to Bridgewater as the focal point of your offense and Adrian Peterson has to be comfortable in shotgun, I think you have to get him some time there. It's probably not going to be a lot, but I also think there needs to become, if Ben's right, which I think he is, if this is Peterson's last year here, I also think the Adrian rules sort of need to go away, which is we can't get you hurt. We can't do this. We can't do that. You're so special. I think those rules don't don't necessarily have to transition to Bridgewater, but I think they have to be put away for at least a year, and you need to say, Adrian, you're not going to play a lot, but you're going to have to line up in shotgun in preseason at times and work with Teddy. If Teddy has to play, you have to play. Yeah, and the lesson that Mike Zimmer said and that they had learned last year was that, oh, maybe I should have been a little bit more involved, and then we pushed him with that. Well, what do you mean more involved? And he said, well, maybe with putting Adrian on the field in the preseason. I'm sure it's something maybe Mike Zimmer would have liked to have seen, but, hey, if he goes out there last year and gets hurt, they're the worst coaching staff in the world for doing it. But at this point, entering his age 31 season and after what you saw last year, I see that the argument's shifting more toward why wouldn't you play him. I thought that was a very interesting comment from Mike Zimmer, and I think from what we've seen in this offseason – Mike Zimmer's approach is if there's something that I see that's not working, I am not just going to sit idly by and assume it's going to correct itself. That is probably one of the things that Leslie Frazier did a little too much. It was, okay, I'm not, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. We'll I'm going to give my coaches some latitude. We'll and take a look at the film. and Right, we'll right. Yeah. That ain't Mike Zimmer. Yeah, They're go. all easily correctable, so all those losses. I think they are going to make some changes because they know not everything worked last year. And my message to Adrian Peterson this year would be, you came back last year. You proved to everybody that you are still a very good running back at age 30. This league is not set up for you to win by yourself, and we know how badly you want to win. You've talked about how badly you want a Super Bowl. We have a team that's good enough to get there if you play in the structure of our offense and if everything complements everything else. If we do that, you may get what you want. You may get a ring, and then you're in great shape. And that'll be it for this episode of the Purple Podcast. Hopefully you got what you want on SoundCloud, Podcast One, iTunes, and 1500ESPN.com. 95% of Uber Eats orders are on time, which is great. Because when I want my spicy shrimp pad thai, I want it on time. Because, baby, there's no time like the present, especially when it's pad thai related. But on the off chance your order is late, Uber Eats will give you three months, $0 delivery fee with a free Uber One membership. On time, pad time, baby. On time claim based on latest arrival time shown after order is placed. Offer ends to 19-2023. Current Uber One members not eligible. Subscription will auto-renew at nine ninety nine each month, starting three months from initial enrollment. Uber.com slash Uber One for terms. Benefits available only for eligible stores. Order minimum supply.